Good evening, everyone. Once again, let us begin our last night of mission and prayer. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Heavenly Father, as we begin this last night of mission, we ask you to bless all of us here, bless this parish, as we have walked the road to Emmaus. Help us to minister to others, to disciple those who have left your church, and to always draw them not only back to the church, but closer to your Son's Eucharistic heart. We ask this as we ask all things through Christ our Lord. Amen. Amen. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. So I want to welcome back everybody who maybe has been here for the past couple of nights and welcome anyone who's new. So as we've done, I'm going to do my best to sort of give a very brief recap and then we are going to get into tonight's material. I will say that last night of a mission, a lot of the times for me at least, is kind of all over the place trying to take strands and tie them together so that hopefully it will make sense. It may be a little bit disjointed, but I think you will be patient with me in that, because what are you going to do, fire me? <laughs> so uh, the first night of the mission, I mean, looking at the road to Emmaus, we see the disciples leaving Jerusalem in disappointment. Christ draws near to them and begins that dialogue. He listens to them. He asks them questions. And showing us how that we can reach out to our friends, family, brothers, and sisters who maybe have left the church. Last night, we spent some time looking at accompaniment on the way as Jesus walked with them, explained the scriptures to them, and talking about how often the path that it takes to bring someone back to the church is a long path. We let them set the pace, and quite often we are going to be walking into darkness can't give up. And so in the end, we saw how they invited Jesus to remain with them at Emmaus. And then now we pass to the third and most important part of the story. They have arrived and now they are sitting down after a long day of walking, of talking, of listening, of dialoguing to have a meal. So we will Read that last part of this passage from Luke chapter 24. When Jesus was at table with them, he took the bread and blessed and broke it and gave it to them. And their eyes were opened and they recognized him and he vanished out of their sight. They said to each other, did not our hearts burn within us while he talked to us on the road? What he opened to us the scriptures. And they rose that same hour and returned to Jerusalem. And they found the eleven gathered together, those who were with them, who said, The Lord has risen indeed and has appeared to Simon. Then they told what had happened on the road and how he was known to them in the breaking of the bread. And so what we're going to do is just try to go over it almost section by section, line by line, to see what the the meaning of this passage is, again, trying to understand it within the context of the gospel itself, how it can relate to our own lives, and how it can relate to our ministry to others. So there's going to be a lot we're going to cover today. Hopefully I'll be able to get it done within the context or the time frame allotted of about an hour. 
So there's a lot in this very, very small passage. And the first, of course, is the most important. Here we are at the central point, the breaking of the bread. They're there sitting with Jesus, and they have finished their road to Emmaus, and the road back to Jerusalem, because that's what we're talking about the whole entire time, the road back to Jerusalem actually begins with the Eucharist with the encounter of the risen Christ. The conversation has stopped, the dialogue has stopped, and they enter into communion with Jesus in the breaking of the bread, where he reveals himself as he truly is to them in the Eucharist. They have an unhindered encounter with the risen Lord Jesus. They were encountering the risen Lord before, but they didn't see it. But here it's revealed to them Christ risen from the dead, truly present in his glorified body in the gift of the Eucharist. But to get here, to get to this point, to be able to understand who Christ is, to be able to open themselves up to receive this message, they have to go through everything they went through. To really be able to perceive Christ crucified and risen from the dead, They have to encounter their own suffering and sorrow before they can experience the resurrection. Like the bread, they have to be broken. And this is a point that I think Pope Francis makes very beautifully. He says, Jesus then repeats for the disciples the fundamental gesture of every Eucharist. He takes bread, blesses it, breaks it, and gives it. Does not Jesus' entire history perhaps lie in this series of gestures? And is there not in every Eucharist also the symbol of what the church should be? Jesus takes us, blesses us, breaks our life because there is no love without sacrifice and offers it to others. He offers it to everyone. And so in order for us to be able to truly give ourselves to others, To live in the power of the risen Christ, we have to be broken in order to receive receive our poverty, to realize our poverty and the need for the risen Lord. We're not able to go back to Jerusalem fully unless we know our own poverty. And that often means we're going to have to suffer. See this a lot with Wives will come up to me whose husbands are away from the church and they say, Father, I just want to pray for my husband's conversion. I pray the Lord the, just touches his heart with his great love. And I always say, honey, he's going to, have to crack his head. <laughs> That's not how men work. There's going to have to be some suffering. There's going to have to be the cross. But what does that brokenness do? One of my favorite quotes from Mother Teresa is this, may God break my heart so completely that the whole world falls in. May God break my heart so completely the whole world falls in. We have to be broken to expand the space, the capacity we have to receive God and to receive others. If not, the person who's never suffered can very easily be closed in. And this increased capacity is something that's going to become important a little bit later on in our reflections. This is accompaniment. We talked about at the end of last night, the companion, the one who breaks bread, who shares bread, panis, with another. 
the companion in the breaking of the bread. It's interesting, though, here Jesus intends to bring them back to Jerusalem, but he doesn't right off the bat say, hey, let's go back to mass and holy hour and adoration. No, he talks to them first. He establishes a relationship. He reveals the scriptures to them. And only then are they ready to really encounter him in the Eucharist. But it's all part of Jesus's plan. This is something that I've said before, and I have to say again, this accompaniment is not meandering. This accompaniment is not, hey, we're just going to go for a walk in the park. We may have to play the long game and walk the long road, but we are going somewhere. But Francis, again, although it sounds obvious, spiritual accompaniment must lead others ever closer to God in whom we attain true freedom. To accompany them would be counterproductive if it became a sort of therapy supporting their self-absorption and ceased to be a pilgrimage with Christ to the Father. We're going somewhere. We're going to the Father's house. It may not be a straight path, but Jesus knows where he is leading the disciples. First to the Eucharist and then back to Jerusalem. And I can tell you over my years as a priest, I have seen more than anything an encounter with the Eucharist change people's lives. More than Bible studies, more than anything else, if we are willing to bring the Lord to the Eucharist, or the Lord, in fact, is willing to make everything slow down so people have time to approach Him in the Eucharist, whether it be at Mass or Adoration, He changes things. I saw this quite definitively four years ago in the COVID lockdown. My favorite two weeks. It was just so quiet. Sit on my front porch, read the newspaper, drink my coffee, and it was cocktail hour in the afternoon. But we kept the church open. Because we had somebody go and spray all the pews after, so they didn't get the Rona, whatever. But people needed something to do, particularly the college students. They were sitting around doing nothing. So they could come in. And during that period of time, I saw people actually slow down and start praying. And boy, the Lord started working. I saw lives completely transformed. I remember walking in there in the church one time at 6 a.m., and there had been a couple of students who had snuck into the back just to pray. It was amazing. They wanted the Eucharist, and as a result, I saw from just that period about five or six vocations bloom because people actually had time to listen. They actually had time to spend time with Jesus. It was very, very subtle, but it was clear for me to see what was happening. Now, something else that, as I was reflecting on this, I, I kind of wanted to propose to see whether or not it's true, is here we are, we end up in the Eucharist before we go back to Jerusalem, but that conversation, that discussion they had on the way, is it possible to see this as a sort of a confession? where they confess their disappointment, their false hopes, I would say probably trusting too much in worldly powers rather than the poverty of accepting Christ's crucifixion. And Christ speaks to them, forgives them, and purifies their heart with the word. And so as a result of this confessional walk, they're now ready to receive the gift of the Eucharist. And so it shows us, yeah, we want to bring people to the Eucharist, 
But sometimes you've got to go to confession first. And that's why that sacrament is so important. But also, to go back to the theme that I brought up several times in the first night, the exodus, the exodus. They've made this exodus out of Jerusalem, going out to Emmaus, going out to this unknown place. Why does Israel go out into the desert? And this is going to become like the central point of what I'm trying to say today. If you read, and we're going to see it in a little bit, they read, if you read it, Moses wants them to go to the desert, first of all, to have time to worship, to worship Yahweh and to be able to rest from work. It was originally going to be for a few days, but Pharaoh was obstinate, and then they got a permanent break from work. But they were going out into the desert to worship. And what did the Lord do whenever they were out in the desert? He gave them manna to feed them. Here, the disciples out in the desert in Emmaus, the manna, the greater manna that comes down the body and blood of Jesus. But there's something else here that I want to focus upon and really is going to become the central point of what our reflection is tonight. And it goes back to that last line of what we heard yesterday when the apostles say, Lord, remain with us. Stay with us. Have this meal. Let's relax together. Whenever I was studying overseas uh, in churches and Italian churches, there was a very popular song. I hated it. We all hated it. But it was called Resta con noi. It was just Resta con noi, non ci lasciar. It's basically this phrase that we hear in the gospel in Italian. Instead of remain with us, resta con noi. Rest with us. Stay with us. Remain with us. Don't leave us, Lord. So this remaining, this invitation, is an invitation primarily to rest with Jesus. And there's a connection here between Exodus, Eucharist, and rest. What is that? The Sabbath. The Sabbath. We know that the roots of the Sabbath go back to the book of Genesis. Genesis chapter 2. Where after creating the world, the universe, God rested on the seventh day. And so what happens is, This commandment to remember the Sabbath becomes part of the Ten Commandments given to Moses, the third commandment, where it goes to remember the Sabbath and keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but on the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. And it goes on to explain all the different requirements of the Sabbath. So the command was, on this day, you're going to rest because God rested You're going to rest to be like God, to become godlike. But later in Deuteronomy, which gives a different presentation of the commandments, we see another reason why this commandment to rest on the Sabbath is there. Deuteronomy chapter 5, verse 15. You shall remember that you were a servant in the land of Egypt. And the Lord your God brought you out from thence with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm. Therefore, the Lord your God commanded you to keep the Sabbath day. So it's not just about creation here. It's reinterpreted 
in light of the exodus from Egypt, the freedom from slavery. So again, as I hinted earlier, let's remember that story. There is Israel and Egypt in slavery, reduced to this horrible labor. Pharaoh has the building pyramids. And the law and the Bible says the Lord sent Moses and Aaron, let my people go. And Pharaoh said, no. But the real reason why was to go for those three days of worship, to have a Sabbath. Sabbath is about rest, and the Sabbath is about worship. But in the New Testament, Jesus reinterprets the Sabbath. He says, I am the Lord of the Sabbath. And in fact, in a way to interpret it, that Jesus is himself the Sabbath. It's in Jesus that we find rest. It's in Jesus that we find worship. He's the Sabbath and the temple. Matthew chapter 11, verse 28 to 30. Come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden light. The disciples here, after all their sorrow and all their struggle, find rest with Jesus in the breaking of the bread. The breaking of the bread that we celebrate every Sunday, every Sabbath. A day of worship and a day of rest. The disciples find this in Emmaus and therefore are refreshed in order to go back to Jerusalem. And so, this is my claim, that what we see in this story of the road to Emmaus is a call for us to find rest in Jesus in the Eucharist. We don't have to go in front of the tabernacle and I've got to get all my rosaries done. I've got to make sure I pray all my novenas. That's all great. Prayer isn't about work. It's about resting. Every time we come to Mass, we celebrate the Sabbath. Every time we go to adoration, we come away to rest for a while. Prayer should be a time of rest. That we should want to rest with Jesus, but even more importantly, Jesus wants to rest with us. Jesus probably says to them today, I've had enough listening to those priests all day. I just need to hang out with some normal people. He's willing to waste time with you, with me. So one of my favorite quotes from a sister who wrote this beautiful introductory book on prayer called Upon This Mountain. And she talks about prayer as rest. And she says, prayer gradually becomes characterized by the ability to rest peacefully in a loving sense of God's presence without desiring anything else. Words and ideas give way to silent communion. The flame of love is burning steadily, and the most we need to do, it seems, to die down is to blow it generally, gently. So it's just resting with the Lord. I'm here. We don't need a lot. But the truth is, particularly us in our culture today, where we're all so busy and running around, myself included, and so distracted, Boy, it's a challenge for us to actually rest, to stop and just be quiet and decompress. And so part of this art of accompaniment 
is learning to rest, learning to take it easy, learning to rest with others and to rest with Jesus. Jesus, who wasted time with these disciples, were called to do the same. Now, there's a deeper dimension to this, and we're going to see it in a few minutes. So this is the resting with the Lord in the Eucharist. They rest, and what happens is, the eye, their eyes are open, and they recognize him. Whoa, we've been hanging out with Jesus all afternoon. Amazing. It's like the blindness that Jesus cures in the Gospels, or the, the scales that fell from Paul's eyes. He didn't force it upon them. He waited until they were ready to see. He waited until they were ready to understand. He waited patiently. Now they have spiritual sight. They can see Christ in the Eucharist. They can reread the preceding events in the light of Jesus, as we talked about last night. And he can see Christ in other ways that he might choose to come to them. But this new sight, not only to see Jesus in the Eucharist, to see the risen Lord in front of them, but he gave them eyes to be able to see others as Jesus sees them. This is so crucial. They've received the gift of the Eucharist. They now have the eyes of the Lord. They can mediate God's gaze. They can look at others in the same way Jesus looked at them. But it's important to understand this, that this clearness of sight, this curing of blindness, is connected to that other important passage that comes next. Did not our hearts burn within us while he talked to us on the road? Their hearts were on fire, even though at the time they probably didn't realize it. Why were their hearts on fire? Yes, because they loved Jesus, But what does fire do? Fire purifies. Fire refines. It made their heart pure. Christ was the one with his spirit through the word was refining their hearts. So it makes us think of the beatitude. Blessed are the pure of heart, for they shall see God. In scripture, the eyes and the heart are connected. They have a purified heart. They have a purified vision. So they can see God. Well, this is the Son of God. This is Jesus right here in front of us. But now also because they have that purified heart, they can see others with the purity of gaze. To be able to see them and their dignity. To be able to be Christ's gaze upon them. Then I actually think in a certain sense, This ties back to the breaking of the bread. Their hearts, we saw, had to break in order to expand. Why? In order to receive the risen Lord, in order to receive others. But in the same way, this purification also prepares the heart to be able to make it pure so that when the heart expands, it is a safe place to receive others. Not just to accompany others on the side, but to carry them in their heart. To love them, to cherish them, to be a safe place for them. 
But of course, Christ does this, as we see in the passage, by opening the scriptures to them. First the scriptures, then the Eucharist, just like in the Mass. Liturgy of the Word, liturgy of the Eucharist. But in the way he explained the scriptures to them, they didn't say our, our, our brain neurons were buzzing. He spoke to their heart. He got to the depth of the matter. He got to the spiritual richness of the scriptures, showing us the power of the word, if we encounter it properly, to purify our own hearts. But this can only be done if we are willing to spend time, to waste time, to rest with Jesus in his body, the church, in the word, and in the sacrament. Pope Francis again Only in this way can he take us by the hand, accompany us, and make our hearts burn again. We too then, like the disciples of Emmaus, are called to spend time with him. When evening comes, he will remain with us. So this is what accompaniment is truly about. Yes, it's about walking with people. Yes, it's about bringing them back to the church. But we do it primarily not just about changing minds, but about inflaming hearts. And it's done by allowing Christ to love others through us, to use our own hearts as a channel for his heart, to give them hope and a desire to return to Jerusalem, to return to the Father's house. And so, Pope Francis says that the whole destiny of the church is contained in this passage we've been reading. It tells us, he says, that the Christian community is not enclosed within a fortified citadel, but rather journeys along its most essential environment, which is the road. And there it encounters people with their hopes and disappointments, burdensome at times, The church listens to everyone's stories as they emerge from the treasure chest of personal conscience in order to then offer the word of life, the witness of love, a love that is faithful until the end, and thus the hearts of people reignite with hope. So very beautifully in that talk in 2013, Pope Francis asked, are we still a church capable of warming hearts? a church capable of leading people back to Jerusalem. This is the way that we bring people back, by opening our hearts, by receiving them, by having a safe place, by loving them with a pure love. This is the key to discipleship. And so after Jesus vanishes, they realize what has happened in their own hearts, And Luke tells us they rose and returned. This is the whole point where this is the Lord's been getting here. We want you to come back to Jerusalem. They rose and returned like the resurrection, like Jesus who rose. It's a very specific word. Also like the prodigal son. He was dead, but he's alive. He rose again to go back to the house of the father. Here they are returning to Jerusalem. Returning to the father's house, just like the prodigal son. 
But not just the Father's house. If we understand scripture and tradition, there are feminine themes. Jerusalem is daughter Zion. The church is our mother. If this is the case, we're bringing them back to mom and dad. We're bringing them back to the church that is our home. A home. We forget this. It's not just a physical structure. We're bringing them back to Jerusalem, to our mother, the church. We are not orphans, Pope Francis says. We need a church capable of restoring citizenship to our many children who are journeying, as it were, in an exodus. Let's bring them home. And the Pope has said that Emmaus tells us how to do it. And it's in the home. It's there in Jerusalem, the church, that they are joyfully received, not condemned, not the mom saying, where have you been? But it's so good to have you back, like the father embracing the prodigal son upon his return. It's one of the great joys of the priesthood. Father Cooper or any other priest will tell you this. To encounter the, as say Jean Vianney said, the gros poisson, the big fish. It happens every once in a while, particularly around Easter, when people come back to confession. Bless me, Father, for I have said it's been 40 years since my last confession. It's been 30 years since my last confession. I can tell you, every priest is so excited. We got a big one. <laughs> and we tell, like, hey, Tell me what you can remember. I'm so happy you're here. I'm going to give you three Hail Marys no matter what you did. Don't worry about it. Other people are like, Father, can I get that deal? We're there to welcome back. Come back and let's, after we get cleaned up, remember that the prodigal son comes back, but before you can sit down at the table, you've got to take a little bath. We've got to reclothe you. That's what I think confession is there. We're restoring your dignity. But then you're back in full communion. You don't have to eat the pig slop. You don't have to be outside and eat the goat with your friends. You can come eat the fatted calf here in the Father's house. But what's interesting, though, Jesus is there, and he is there to welcome them. How does Jesus welcome them back? Because he disappeared. Well, he welcomes them back into the church through the apostles who encounter them, who encounter them and welcome them back. And so once they get into the church, what do we see? They found the 11 gathered, the family, the church, the community, the apostles. They're not just coming back to a building. They're not coming back to an empty church. They're coming back to a family where they're received. This is the thing we talked about the first night. What's that fundamental desire that we all have? We all have a desire to belong. So they come back to a place where they belong, where they're seen. We're so glad you're back. Tell us what's going, been, been going on. They went in search of something else. They had the orphan spirit, but they realized that this doesn't give us a full sense of belonging. 
Most people, I think, who leave the church realize this. The different groups, the different organizations, the different things that we put our identity in will not give fulfillment. And the truth is, as I think I alluded to before, there are a lot of other people and a lot of other organizations out there that are trying to give people, including those who have left the church, a sense of belonging, a sense of identity. You belong to us. You're defined by your likes. You're defined by your sexual proclivities. You're defined by whatever. No, you're defined by your existence as a beloved son or daughter. This is your family. And we can complain all we want that people are leaving. They're defining themselves by their favorite sports team or by their hobbies. But we've got to ask ourselves, maybe we're not doing a really good job of making people feel like they belong. Maybe it's our fault. What can we be doing while respecting the truths of the gospel to welcome people back? To make them feel like they belong. To make them feel seen, known, and loved. Remember, faith can only grow in a community. If you try to do it by yourself, you are going to fail. In every parish, this is what we're supposed to be doing. And I really see evidence of y'all trying to do it over here. To create community. Not just to have a place where people come to Mass and then leave where they want to be, where they want to be grounded. It's good to come back to Jerusalem. It's good to come back home. But finally, what we see is that the disciples recount the events after the apostles tell them that Simon and the others have seen the risen Lord Jesus. What they're doing is bearing witness to the others what Jesus did in their lives. So here they are returning back to Jerusalem, and now they're missionaries. In a certain sense, you could say that Jesus sent them back. They come back there not just to be received, but to give testimony. They're missionaries, like the Samaritan woman after Christ reveals her sins to her in John chapter 4. They testify, but then they also hear what the apostles say. So we have a dialogue, a conversation, both building each other up with the testimonies of not just what they believe, but what they've experienced, what they've seen, how they've encountered the risen Lord. And I love this because I think it shows us the power of conversion stories. I could get up here and give you, say, I'm going to give you a lecture about conversion and about the gospel. But then someone else comes and says, let me tell you my conversion story. How it became concretized in my life. You're going to want to listen to that story. We all love it. The people who have left left the church and come back and then share their testimonies. They resonate with people. The stories themselves can bring about great conversion and great healing. That's why it's so good to have opportunities to be able to share the testimonies in the ways that we have encountered Jesus and he's brought us back to a deeper communion with him. Now, to sort of tie other things together, 
Luke, we know, wrote the Gospel of Luke about the road to Jerusalem. And here on the road outside of Jerusalem, they, they convert. But Luke also wrote the, the book of Acts. Then what other story do we hear of a person who had strayed away from God's will, who was on the road, who had a shocking encounter with the risen Lord Jesus, and this time he became blind and then had to go back on the road? St. Paul, it's the same story, the prodigal son, the same story, the road to Emmaus, the same story, the road to Damascus. He has the conversion, and just like disciples, he goes back and he starts preaching the gospel. He becomes a missionary because of this encounter with Jesus. And here, though, y'all, is where I kind of want to bring it all together. I thought this was going to be long and meandering. It's actually probably a little short. If it is very short and y'all want to ask some questions or have a dialogue, we can certainly do that. And this is an insight that sort of came to me about a week ago. I don't really hear God's voice that much. Sometimes other people will tell me stuff, and I said, oh, I think this is the Lord's voice. And it happened last week, and I've been praying about it. And so I'm going to try to present it to you as I think it applies to our reflections. The disciples return to Jerusalem after what they have encountered. They've listened to the word. They've encountered the Lord Jesus and the breaking of the bread. But the passage implies that they not just encountered the Lord and the breaking of the bread, but what happens to the breaking of the bread? Take this, all of you, and eat it, because this is my body. They received the risen flesh of Jesus in the Eucharist. They have become tabernacles. The Eucharist is within them. And so, as we've been talking about the need for Jesus to accompany us back to Jerusalem, it seems like he doesn't do that. It seems like, boop, he disappears, you're on your own. No! Jesus goes back to Jerusalem, but within them. The risen Lord Jesus goes back and encounters the apostles in and through these disciples. They don't go back alone. They've received the risen Lord Jesus. But as we believe, and as Scripture testifies, you are what you eat. If we receive the risen flesh of Jesus, then uh, we receive spirit and fire. We share in the power of the resurrection. John chapter 6 is literal. Verse 51, I am the living bread which came down from heaven. If anyone eats this bread, he will live forever. And the bread that I shall give is my flesh for the life of the world. What does that mean? Because Jesus is risen from the dead, when we receive the Eucharist, we receive the risen flesh of Jesus. We get to share in eternity, not just after we die, but we begin sharing in the resurrection now. The seed begins to be planted that God willing will bear fruit to eternal life after we die. 
So Jesus does go back to Jerusalem. He goes back in the disciples, a hidden presence. St. Paul, it is no longer me who live, but Christ living in me. Christ living in and through the disciples. Christ living in and through us. As we are transformed more and more into him, we are able to see with his eyes, to love with his heart, to be present to others. This is the whole point. That through our encounter with Christ in the Eucharist and our transformation more and more into him, we are called to draw near to others and accompany them. And as we draw near to the Eucharist, we are more like him. So when we accompany them, it's actually Christ doing it. He's just doing it through us. But this is the real insight. More than that, more than just sort of being tabernacles or being other risen Christ to others, because we have found rest, Sabbath with Christ in the Eucharist, and if Jesus is the Sabbath, then we are called to be Sabbaths for others. We are called to be resting places for others. We are called to be safe places for others, to bring them the rest we found. But if we're always anxious, if we're always worried, we can't be that space of rest for others. If we encounter the Sabbath in Jesus, if we encounter the Sabbath at Mass in the Eucharist, then we have become tabernacles, Sabbaths, places of rest for others. This is what hopefully calmed the anxiety of the disciples. And we, too, if we live this mystery, can hopefully become instruments, places of rest for a very anxious world. Whether or not that is a valid insight, I don't know. It's up to y'all to decide. But in a world that's so restless, in a world that's so distracted, the more that we arrest in Christ in the Eucharist, and the more that we become resting places, the more hopefully we can bring peace to the world. So, in conclusion, you know where this is going. I gave you the little test, the little homework. So if we're going to give a theme for our mission, I've learned a lot of words over the course of this mission. We've talked about the exodos, the synhodos, We've been studying roads. Well, actually, what is the, this is the word I learned. The study of roads or ways or traveling is called hodology. Hodology, the study of the hodos. And so what have we been doing? I, I, I was an English major. I, I love words. I study etymologies. What have we been doing? We have been studying this episode from the gospel. The episode, the story of the road to Emmaus, the epihodos, upon the road. An episode means upon the road, the same word, on the way or an incident. So what is going to be the word for this last part, the way back? And actually it's back to Jerusalem and an ascent that goes up. And I'm going to tell you right now how I found this word. Some of y'all are going to gasp. I found it through ChatGPT. 
I love me some ChatGPT. Said, ChatGPT, give me a word that begins with, that has the word hodos, but uses the Greek prefix for the way back. And there is actually a word. Anodic or a nodal. A-N-O-D-A-L. Anahodos. The way up or the way back. What's the antonym of anodic? Cathodic. For those of you who are engineers and know batteries and electrical engineering, the anode and the cathode, the way back or the way up and the way down. Ana kata. So it's the anodic way. This is not as exciting as Synodal or <laughs> Exodus. But boy, I was loving ChatGPT. The anodic way back. We're going, the charge is going back up to where it belongs. We're going back up to Jerusalem. And one more. We talked about it. The whole sort of way of doing this, of the art of accompaniment, of bringing people to the Eucharist, of allowing them to encounter Jesus. We've learned a sort of method, the meta Hodos. I didn't know there were that many words that had hodos in it. But if you type in the ChatGPT, they'll give you a whole list of about 10 of them. The meta after hodos, after the way. We've learned from Jesus here the method of discipleship, bringing people back anodically up to Jerusalem during this mission. Out, along the way, and back. Three parts that we can, of course, bring to others. Hopefully, bringing the people that we know, maybe after a short time, after a long time, back to Christ. Back to his church. The last thing that I want to say is this, this is not just about discipleship for others. This is not just about reaching out to those who've left. It's actually for all of us because we're all pilgrims on the way. The road to Emmaus is sort of describes all of our journeys. We've all been tempted to leave. We've all had doubts and we've had disappointments. And we're always going back. Imitating the path of Jesus, the Son of God who came down and he went back, ascended. The back and the, 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 the coming and the going, the, what we call it in theology, the exitus reditus. We are pilgrims on the road to the heavenly Jerusalem. We know where we're going, but we're not going alone. That's the key. Jesus is walking with us. He's present to us. This is the food on the journey in the Eucharist. We walk with the other members of his body, the church. Let's sum it all up. Dialogue, distance, discipleship. This is the road to Emmaus. This is a symbol of our entire lives. And so I'll close with one last quote from Pope Francis, which I think is so beautiful and sums up everything we've talked about. He says, our entire life 
is a journey. We walk it with Christ, but we do not recognize him. Not until the end of the journey, heaven, when in hindsight it will all make sense, will we recognize the burning of our hearts. So, I am very grateful for you allowing me to sort of walk with you through this journey. Father Cooper, for inviting me to be here as your Linton mission preacher. Um, Know that I'll be praying for you and hope that everybody has a wonderful Lent. I'll give you a final blessing, and then we're going to go ahead and bless the items, uh, the ribbons on the cross. The Lord be with you. May Almighty God bless you, the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Go in peace.